I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks with me, Christian Chiller. Another series of interviews this episode from the recent Open Source Summit in Bilbao. This episode, I will have Gab Colombro, who is the general manager of Linux Foundation Europe, and we talk about his last year running Linux Foundation Europe. And then I also talk with Dawn Foster, who heads up the Chaos Project, which helps open source projects analyze important metrics for the health of their project. That will come up in a minute. I'm just going to cover three news stories. One actually related to Open Source Summit in Bilbao and two just uh, completely unconnected to everything else on the show. Uh, so let's jump into those right away. One of the announcements that got a lot of people excited and talking now, oh, nearly a month ago now, so I'm a little bit late, but I wanted to to just bring it in into the episode as it sort of relates to a little bit of what the two interviews also speak about, was the launch of Open Tofu. Now, if you haven't heard what this refers to, the name may not tell you a great deal. It cast your mind back a couple of months ago, and there was Terraform, the change of licensing behind Terraform from HashiCorp, which caused a lot of upset amongst its users, amongst the community, amongst other companies that kind of rely on it for their own business, etc., etc. And for a brief period of time, there was OpenTF, which was an open fork that was actively going to be maintained by the, the community around it. And then at Linux Foundation, it was announced and then at Open Source Summit, it was announced that the Linux Foundation was forming Open Tofu, bringing OpenTF into the Linux Foundation fold, kind of giving them the governance and the structure they need. The name caused some discussion. Uh, I don't know. I guess uh, OpenTF couldn't really last because it's too close to Terraform, which could cause some issues in the future. Tofu, I don't exactly know where that came from. I have no relation with it. I like tofu. I eat it a lot. Tofu is something that a lot of people add to to other food to bring flavor, to bring taste, to bring texture, which is sort of what Terraform does. I think you could argue, maybe. I, I guess we'll have to stop calling it Terraform. I, I don't know. Do you have to create an open tofu file now? I'm not sure. That's something that maybe I'll dig into at a later date with more of some hands-on coverage. But that was one of the big announcements of the, of, the, of the summit and one I just wanted to make sure I, I sort of touched on. And it's been ticking along, I think, since. If we take a look at their progress and website right now, you can already see that their GitHub organization has gained a lot of followers. The community is quite active. There's a lot of discussions around office hours and discussions and how to switch to it, how to migrate from Terraform to OpenTofu, et cetera, et cetera. I, I kind of think this is possibly something a lot of people will end up doing unless they have existing 
contracts with HashiCorp and, and Terraform, et cetera, et cetera, which can happen. I definitely know there are other quite famous projects that have switched from pure open source to uh, commun- from pure open so- that have switched from pure open source to commercial models. And then people have wanted to switch to more pure open source alternatives, but it takes time, especially when you look at mission critical things like infrastructure, which is what uh, Terraform slash Open Tofu is. But there's a lot. There's a lot going on, and I think I think it's going to be one of these projects to keep an eye out for. Terraform is one of these things that was sort of had become so much. Uh, Behind the scenes sounds kind of insulting, but very much something that a lot of people used to 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 create and roll out the glue behind a lot of the infrastructure that people almost took it for granted and sort of, you know, it's not new. It's something that people almost forgot about. And then this change has made people think about it again. It's kind of, in some respects, ironically, given the project a whole new lease of life. And I use the term project here to mean almost both of them. And it will maintain backward compatibility with Terraform versions prior to 1.5, which is where the licensing changed. And then after that, who knows? They can't really they can't really say what's going to happen after that. It's not really their their roadmap, I suppose. And then likewise, and then likewise, Things that maybe people were asking for in Terraform may come to Open Tofu first because it's uh, community contributions. And already they are announcing that some companies have pledged to pay for full-time engineers to work on Open Tofu. And that's 19 already, which is actually quite a lot. I can't imagine the people at uh, HashiCorp were much greater than that. So, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting in itself. And uh, it's interesting to see where it where it goes from here, I suppose, and see who keeps getting involved with it, who keeps maintaining it, and, and how it how this fork diverges over time. And I'm sure there's a pun about forking and tofu, but I think I'm just going to leave it alone because uh, I could just uh, ramble even more than I have already before before losing you all completely. Another large kind of open source project announcement from Canonical. They seem to be making quite a few announcements recently. This is adding Apache Spark to Canonical's charmed suite of open source packages that they kind of bring a an optimized experience for on their Kubernetes implementations and now Spark joins that. Spark is is not a new project either, but it's widely used by a lot of a lot of companies. Again, a little bit like OpenTofu, behind the scenes, and more increasingly popular with a lot of machine learning workflows these days. And it's all leading towards a canonical data fabric suite of data processing solutions for all sizes of data. So. This is kind of how Canonical makes its its money with these service-supported packages like this. And I think Spark meeting MLflow and Kubeflow, these are all starting to slot together into a supported, optimized for Ubuntu and Canonical's Kubernetes implementation for these, these workflows at scale. 
So starting to see all those pieces coming together and Apache Spark. I don't know if it's the final piece of this suite. Who knows? We'll find out soon, I suppose, with any more announcements I get about that. couple of quick sort of and finally mentions just the sorts of things that interest me as you probably know from listening to the show for a little while first is from music radar a website i have been subscribing to hence we're getting a lot of interesting things out of it recently this was one uh, so let's let's unpack some jargon here daw digital audio workstation this was an article, five underrated DAWs that aren't Logic Ableton or Pro Tools and why you should consider switching. I actually shared this with a community I'm in. It sparked quite a lot of discussion <laughs> about uh, which should and shouldn't be on that list. It reminds me very much of text editor discussions and also why they decided to say that aren't Logic Ableton or Pro Tools. Uh, I mentioned that Cubase was no mention there. And someone said, well, Cubase isn't an underdog. And then I argued, well, is Logic or Pro Tools an underdog? Out of those three, you could possibly say Ableton is the biggest underdog. I would argue that less people have heard of it, less people use it than Pro Tools or Logic. Anyway, <laughs> this is always the interesting thing when you get these verses lists, but very, very quickly, and I'll let you go and take a look at the link. They mentioned Arda, Reaper, which I've definitely heard people mention a lot in the community, Bitwig, which is actually a spin-off from some of the team from Ableton. Korg Gadget, which is not one I'd come across at all. Acoustica Mixcraft, also not heard of it. But that's just five. There are many others, actually. And there's a few I want to sort of look through. I'm largely settled around mixing around a bit between GarageBand, which may or may not be considered a DW, I don't know, and Ableton, which I'm still struggling to learn. But I do have a light version of Cubase I keep around as well because I sometimes just find it the easiest way to do things. It's more familiar to me than Ableton. But like text editors, like many other things in technology, there's a lot of opinions and really fundamentally, it's up to you. And definitely, finally, we're getting towards Halloween. I'm actually planning a special trip this Halloween. I'll sort of report back from that in a few weeks, I think. Uh, suffice it to say, if you're in the New England area, next week and the week after let me know because that's where i will be but this is from tor.com a fantastic publisher haunting texts and eldritch tomes seven scary books that thankfully aren't real many have heard of the necronomicon it's mentioned in hp lovecraft and many many films it's not real despite what a lot of people might think it's one of those interesting fantasy tomes that's become so mentioned i think people almost forget that it was invented by somebody <laughs> A uh, book of names from Lovecraft Country, which is somewhat connected. Invocations from Hereditary. I think I sort of forgot about that one. Stutter Kane's novels from In the Mouth of Madness. Interestingly, a lot of these, especially the, the number one and number three, very much actually connect all to, or no, one, two and four, actually, sorry. All somewhat connect back to Lovecraft, I think. It's almost spin-offs of the Necronomicon if there was such a thing. And there's a few others here too. I kind of like these things. I love these sort of fantasy tropes that become almost reality. I always find it quite interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's me. That's me, I guess. All right, then. Enough of my rambling for links for this week. I, I just mostly wanted to get to the interviews and I had a couple of things in the queue I just wanted to get out, but not, not, a, lot of, not a lot of interesting links this week, probably more in the next few weeks. So let's get to the interviews with Gab Columbro up first from the Linux Foundation Europe and then Dawn Foster of the Chaos Project. But first, a few 
words from some sponsors. Just a couple of quick caveats before I get to the interviews. These were recorded live at an event. We were recording them outside, which initially seemed like a great idea. And there was a lot of background noise. And I really ended up having to focus the microphone on the speaker because they're more important than me. And that meant that you couldn't really hear me. So I've overdubbed a lot of my questions. So it's going to jump backwards and forwards a little bit. I've done my best to make it as smooth as possible, but it might sound slightly strange in a few places. Next, I'm joined by Gab Columbro, General Manager of Linux Foundation Europe. What does that mean in the wider context of the Linux Foundation? Well, we launched Linux Foundation Europe in September last year. Okay, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the at the previous open source summit, so it's yeah. been 370 days today. Thank you. It's our first regional entity within the broader Linux Foundation Federation. And so the reason and the mission of Linux Foundation Europe is to grow projects that are, you know, I would say Europe strong, whether that means that are aligned with European priorities, or that means they have strong representation from European organizations and contributors. That's really why we felt having an entity incorporated in Europe could really help uh, fostering and nurturing the local community better. Uh, and so in the last year, we now have 150 members, we have four projects, we've grown a staff of both folks that actively nurture new projects to come into the, the Linux Foundation Federation. What LF Europe is not, it's not about fragmenting and siloing uh, what inherently is global. Open source is a global community and, you know, we've seen already a lot of geopolitics and, and sort of techno-nationalism at play in technology. And so Linux Foundation Europe, it's not a silo, it's a gateway you know, our tagline is collaborate locally, innovate globally. What does that mean at a European level? I think there's often a misconception of what Europe yep. is. It's more than one yep. country, many more than one country. And that's not even including the countries that aren't in the European Union or are European in other ways. It's a really interesting question. So clearly we felt that Europe was the first region where we needed to have a dedicated entity very much because of the supranational, uh, you know, overlay that the EU brings on nation, nation states. So it's, yes, it's 27 states, but with a unifying sort of set of regulations, set of priorities, uh, set of IP rules as to the, how intellectual property flows across these organizations. Uh, uh, sorry, across these, these nations. Uh, now, L we are LF Europe, we're not LF EU. So that includes the UK, that includes Switzerland, that includes Eastern Europe. Um, definitely we don't want to keep fragmenting again more and more the ecosystem, but, but certainly, you know, the first year has seen us really focus on the EU and also on the differences of how you go about building projects in Europe versus, you know, I live in California and there is a very different approach to tech and to open source collaboration. And so, 
you know, you know, case in point is the engagement of the public sector. I think in the EU, we have, we have participated to many grants. Open Wallet is very aligned with, it's one of the projects of LF Europe, is very aligned with the European ID. So there's, there's a lot of touch points. And I think uh, I would say generally a stronger involvement of the public sector in Europe than in the US. How did you decide the projects and or companies that would be more attached to Linux Foundation Europe than the wider Linux Foundation? Really good question. We have, I think, a, a, a good range of these four projects that we now have in LF Europe, that we have now in LF Europe. It's, I think they're good archetypes of the different type of ways that projects will get into LF Europe. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Open Wallet was a net new project um, that it's global in nature. I mean, digital wallets are nothing specific to a single region, but one of the was very aligned with the IDAS2 regulation, which is the European ID. Uh, um, and so that was sort of, I would say, the spark that sort of got us into uh, uh, accelerating Open Wallet. Um, but on the other hand, you're seeing, you know, participation from the public sector in Europe and we just announced Google and Microsoft joining it. So right, bringing together, you know, think about it, the EU and big tech, it's kind of, a, I think, a big feat to actually collaborate in open source. So that's one. On the other hand, we recently announced Servo. Servo is a web engine based in Rust. 20,000 starts on GitHub. So pretty, you know, pretty, pretty big project. And that was a project that was in LF US and was moved into LF Europe because the community thought there was more alignment with the priorities in Europe, with, you know, the need for optionality when it comes to the browsers market and the Digital Services Act that is coming down from the US. Yes, that's a second option, moving an existing project into LF Europe. And then honestly, there are also projects that are still in LF US like LF Energy, but they're very Europe strong. And so we collaborate very much with them to help them grow their footprint even further in Europe. So, you know, in the end, again, as I said before, we don't want to fragment. It's not a heavy uh, partition. It's, it's truly an overlay that allows, you know, to maximize the potential to collaborate locally, but ultimately we always going to host global projects in fact our members every company can be a member it's not limited to just european members to sort of that part of your question maybe it's a bit of a cliche but how do you help these projects and companies balance that innovation versus regulation that can often be more common in europe and european countries no i mean look especially i'm an italian that lives in california and so you know I, I come from, you know, I've been in Europe until I was 25 and I come from a certain cultural background, a, a certain view of the role that the government it, it plays in our daily lives, which is certainly a bit of a heavier ended uh, role than you'd say in the US, but it helps maybe as a background, I run the way I came into the Linux Foundation three years ago is that I merged my own foundation into the LF and my own foundation is called Finos. It's the oh, FinTech yeah. Open Source Foundation. Yeah. We bring banks together to work on open source. And one of the things that I realized working in sort of this vertical foundation, especially in the highly regulated industry, was that actually 
our, you know, paramount goal would be to get the regulators to also participate in the open collaboration. There are major advantages for regulators themselves in terms of transparency, in terms of efficiency of enforcement, in terms of almost finding a third way in this constant battle between regulation and deregulation. Well, maybe there is a way of making regulation efficient, efficient and not so burdensome. I think I was speaking with someone from Fenos at one of the KubeCon receptions uh, in the past, but uh, maybe it was you. Could be. But because fintech and the financial sector is one of those areas that's kind of easier in Europe than the US in terms of accessing a market. You know, the Baltics have those things like sandboxes and things like that. Well, yeah, because of the regulation. Yeah, I don't want to go into necessarily political statement, you know, and I think there are good points on the deregulation side and good points on the regulation side. But on a personal basis, as an Italian living in America, well, we can move money, just a simple example, we can move money in Europe instantaneously (laughs) (laughs) with an IBAN number that works across Europe and it's instantaneous. In the US, I still have to wait three days for my money to be moved from one to another. And that's largely because of vendor lock-in of these institutions, which is not sort of regulated, a standard is not mandated or regulated necessarily. And so... I think, again, without going into should we regulate more, should we regulate less, basically, I think open source, what I've learned in Finos, is that open source could be a way that, hey, let's make regulation more efficient and less burdensome so that it becomes a known problem in a way, the amount of regulation that there is. Some of it seems to be with a lot of these banking as a service companies. There's so many here in Europe now, I almost lose track of them and they're often behind some of the, the other companies you might have heard of, like N26, for example, et cetera, et cetera. They don't make anything themselves. They just buy it off the shelf from other suppliers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I see some similarities in between my, you know, I don't want to say that every industry in Europe is as regulated as the financial services, because they're still high, more regulated than others. But certainly when you look at it from the standpoint of the U.S., most areas of the market in Europe are more regulated than the US. And so I see a lot of similarities from the experience that I've built building a community in financial services sort of with the need of the public sector engagement to what I'm trying to to do in Europe, where the EU has a stronger presence and impact on every industry. How do you find working with academia from the US and Europe? They have different styles of working even though they both have quite strong academia sectors you know america maybe looks more at monetizing its research european countries do different things depending on the country do you do much interaction with academia i would say it's one of the big you know from the Finnish side is one of the big goals that we haven't necessarily tapped in into but yeah from a linux foundation standpoint broadly and not specifically if europe we haven't started engaging with academia But, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, one of the reasons I fell in love with open source is because I think it's, especially from someone that had to study on proprietary technologies and learn Microsoft Office and Microsoft Access, I actually think open source is one of the best educational tools that can ever be. And, and, And if we taught open source, (laughs) <laughs> better 
you sparked a memory in my head. I, I don't know if this part of the world is part of your remit or not, but I spent a bit of time at some events in the Balkans and obviously Croatia's in the EU, but I was at an event in Albania as a very big open source event and uh, a lot of uh, people there were really into using Linux and they'd have these Microsoft-sponsored labs, but... <laughs> but most of the people had actually ended up installing Linux on top of them instead and preferred using it with that. <laughs> Amazing. That's beautiful. Look, I think that has changed over time. Like we're starting to see like, you know, Microsoft itself, you know, it's not the Microsoft when we were growing up, you know, now they're, now they're the most, they're the most, the biggest contributor in open source ever. So look, I think, the Linux Foundation, especially, I think there are a couple of areas that we really interact with the academic community. You know, every single of our conferences has, you know, sort of student and interns grant for travel funding and participating and joining the conferences. The other big push for us has been open source security. Part of the remit of OpenSSF has been to make sure that software security is embedded in the curriculums of, of uh, universities uh, around in Europe and in the US. I mean, it's certainly something that is not as prevalent as you think it would be in computer science. There's not, a, there's not a major focus on secure software development. You know, it's always on the, generally on the operational side, not shifting left, shifting, yeah, shifting left towards teaching secure coding practices to developers, like building in security while you're building an application. It's always like, oh, developers are going to build and then, you know, the sysadmins or the DevOps are going to secure it. I think over the past few KubeCons, there's been a lot of discussion around software secure supply chain and SBOMs and these sorts of, 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 of solutions and whether organizations like the European Union are going to start regulating and mandating that anytime soon. We are seeing a very different approach between the US and Europe when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, in Europe, we are very concerned about the Cyber Resilience Act, not because of its goals, the goals make a lot of sense, but because it's, it's putting liability on open source maintainers and open source foundations. And that has really the potential of undermining open source in Europe effectively, as well as just uh, undermining the value exchange pattern that, that we're used to, that open source is provided as is. That said, yeah, in the Cyber Resilience Act, there is a, uh, they say that they will then set standards as to what it means to be secure and how you ship software. And so, you know, I certainly think S-bombs are going to end up being, I don't know whether it'd be mandated, but certainly S-bombs is, it's a strongly, you know, it's a big component of that. In the US, I, we've seen a very different approach. I mean, OpenSSF was invited last week at the White House with, you know, the CISO of JP Morgan, the CISO of, of CD, and with the big technology companies. So in a way, foundations, are the first class the the the, U, the White House understands that foundations are a first class citizen in the conversation of the open source supply chain, and they are making investments on you know mandating as bonds and like funny enough again the U.S. that 
it's generally less regulated or they are actually aggressively pushing on open source supply chain security. There isn't even uh, an RFI right now open where the White House is asking, you know, the community, how should we be uh, enforcing open source supply chain security? It feels like that act has been very controversial. Was that just a misunderstanding from the people who created it or do you think it might have been act of lobbying no it's not i don't think it's uh lobbying you know if the cyber resiliency act conversation is something that has dominated the open source media for the last year and that effectively has taken way more of my time than i thought it would when i took the lf europe job uh, a year ago I think there is a combination of, you know, pressure to do something about cybersecurity. You know, it's correctly recognized as a national security, or in this case, EU level security risk. And, you know, as we know, there are elections, European elections next year. So I guess there is a time factor here, I would, I would argue. But B, yes, there is some fundamental misconception as to how the open source ecosystem works. The the CRA is built and designed for unidirectional physical product like type supply chains where a company has a factory that produces a product and puts it into the market and then sells it and then you know it's got a has liability for that product. That is not how software is shipped nowadays, especially if we start from the, I wouldn't even say assumption, but data that tells us that 70, 80, 90% of software that is shipped is open source. And so there is this massive web of interconnected set of dependencies where you have individual maintainers involved that work uh, as hobbies, so they're paid, and then you have foundations. And then, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, blame the EU, but there's certainly a, a, a misconception as to, you know, who should hold the liability. It's not the, the producers, it's who puts the product into the market. And, and right now the CRA, it's not very clear into the definition of what it means to put a product into the market. Yeah. Is, is putting a project on GitHub, put it, putting it into the market, it's deploying a package on Maven Central on NPM, Putting a market is GitHub liable because it's sh- is is hosting a project that it's in the market. Yeah. You know, uh, there has been improvements in the CRA throughout the year, but you know, today we launched a campaign, fix oh, the CRA. It's been a lot of changes in the past six months to twelve months around open source. Yeah, uh, you know, things changing. Like, no, no, I'm going to actually get more general yeah, than that. So you going? Um, also, we've seen you know changes to funding, changing the way that companies who are interacting with open source are working. That that kind of thing. So, how do you feel about the current state of open source? Well, look. So I'll I'll touch on the two points that you made, and then uh, I'll, I'll I'll sort of answer the broader question. And and I tried to make that point on on stage today. So, on the funding side, on the funding side, honestly, I don't know that I would single out open source or even technology as a particular area where funding went down. It's just been part of the broader, you know, like we we have we. 
we had a complex economic climate in the last year, year and a half. In yeah. fact, you know, last week ARM went IPO and that was the first IPO in two years and everyone was waiting for it to understand, okay, where is it going to go? Like, are we, are we on demand when it comes to, to the tech? So I, I don't know that I would single out open source funding or evaluations. I think that's just part of the yeah. broader economic climate. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know, start picking back up the, the initial, you know, ARM IPO sort of start to also signal in that direction. You know, and even Databricks, if you think about it, that showed like they just closed their Series D fund up round. So that shows that, you know, companies that have a strong product market fit and a great execution can survive funding winters or, or you know, chilling effects of, of economic headwinds. On the, quickly on the HashiCorp side, you know, you probably have followed the, the, the change of the license and the OpenTF manifesto, for hard fork that came out of it. You know, there, there's some interesting announcements coming throughout the week, so I really suggest that you, you join the next keynotes. But, you know, I think it's important to say that nobody should be religious. I personally don't have a religious position in this, as in, as a venture-backed company, Hashigur, owning the full copyrights of, of Terraform or the, the libraries that they change because that's what's written in the CLA. They have the full prerogative to change their license. Now, from a consumer standpoint though, it's important that when companies decide to enter a dependency on an upstream open source project, they understand the difference between just basic open source yeah. and openly governed. And yeah. those are very different. Those are very different. But even just the fact that no single company, like projects in the, I mean, that's, besides everything else that we do, the base layer and value of each open source foundation, not just the Linux foundation, Apache is the same, Eclipse is the same, is making sure that no single entity owns the trademark, the copyrights, and everything around IP around a single project, because again, I know I'm sure there's gonna be plenty of companies that continue to use Ashigorp. And I'm, you know, I have no I have no reason to say that Ashigorp is gonna fail as a company because of this. But the consumers need to go into this with eyes open and make a risk-based decision. That's sort of my position on that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's open source. I mean, there's still a lot of open washing out yeah, there. Sure. And I'm not saying that Ashikorp is. And so just finally closing on your question, I, I try to tell people on stage just to close. It's like, hey, you've heard about a lot of challenges today. You've heard yeah. about the CRA. You've heard about, you know, the, the, the open governance, Ashikorp situation. You've heard about open source sustainability in the supply yeah. chain. Um, but guess what? I mean... Every year there is a new challenge in open source and, and it's because open source is everywhere and it's so critical. And, you know, I, I try to send an uplifting message. I think, I think with open source and AI, if you think about yeah. it, yeah. like we are entering a whole new phase and, and, it's, and it's exciting. That's why we're all here. Let's end on a positive note. What are some of your favorite Europe-based open source projects and things at the moment? 
Okay, <laughs> so I would say I would say the the I have to plug the LF Europe one, which is uh, Open Wallet Foundation. It's the best sort of from my perspective epitome of, of why LF Europe exists. Um, because in so many ways, it is a global project. It brings in industry participants, like multi-industries, by the way, because again, this is not just about wallet as in payments and transactions. It's identity, it's credentials, it's, you know, car keys, it's your COVID pass, it's, you know, really, truly cross-industry. And so you have Visa, you have Deutsche Telekom, you have sort of really good cross-industry representation. But on the other hand, it has a government advisory council, so it's very aligned with the public sector. And, you know, having recently announced Google, you know, one of the two major wallet providers buying into the idea of an open wallet where the data resides with the user, yeah. you know, in, in a post-surveillance capitalism era, I think it's, it sends a really strong message. Like, yeah. industries, big tech, and governments collaborating on something that ultimately it's so important to individuals. I think that's, that's beautiful. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Mastodon just because, you know, it, it, was, it was funded out of the NGI projects, Horizon projects early in the day. That's how it, it originally started. And so, you know, with, you know whether, whether you're a Elon Musk fanboy or not, it's certainly, it's certainly an interesting project. It's interesting. In addition to the microblogging, I was at an event in Glasgow recently and someone showed me this other things you can do with this federated aspect around event platforms and websites and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I gotta say, I'm not an expert in Mastodon. I have to say that from an end user standpoint, I'm so, I've been so busy that, you know, I see people with their, you know, on X now yeah. versus Twitter with their Mastodon uh, name. And so I was like, okay, fine, let's go into Mastodon. And then I go sign up and say, which server? It's like, oh, okay, I can't choose. Uh, I'll, I'll try tomorrow. You know, just too much choice for an end user. No, but kidding aside, uh, I think the third one, just kind of to go uh, kind of in a whole other area is, a project called Cyan, and this is probably coming from my banking sort of engagement in Finos. Uh, this is not a Finos project, but it is a very low-level protocol, messaging protocol, that almost, if I remember correctly, is supposed to, to replace some layers of the IP stack. So that low... And it's being rolled out by, it's been mandated, I think, by Swiss authorities. It is actually, I think it was developed by ETH, ETH Zurich. And it's now being mandated as a project that the Swiss exchange needs to use. And like, they're going to switch transactions and exchange transactions from IP to the Scion protocol, which is, again, fully open source on GitHub. And I'm like, that is one of the sort of poster childs that I'm trying to use with my community in Finos to say, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. like Swiss are so, you know, you'd say, you know, they're very conservative in so many ways, but they're actually being very progressive in yeah. uh, mandating an open source product. Yeah, like a, a lot of high speed, there's a lot of high speed investment because, you know, the difference of milliseconds can. Yes. 
And I think this is both so also not just uh, performance, but also security. Yes. I think what they're trying to do is really kind of built-in packet level security and encryption. Cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Next, I'm joined by Dawn Foster, who represents many things, but we are talking about the Chaos Project, which I am sure stands for something. What does that What does that actually stand for? It does indeed. It stands for the Community Health Analytics for Open Source Software. I think that they they came up with the acronym, or they came up with the they came up with it so that the acronym would have a cool name. Is it also a little bit about uh, getting chaos in and out of open source projects, that kind of thing? Giving agendas and priorities, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, exactly. Open source projects have, have a lot of different components, right? And so we are, we're focused on open source project health analytics and measurement. So if you look at open source projects, there's lots and lots of stuff that you can measure, but actually making sense out of that is a lot of what the chaos project does. We define metrics to help people be consistent about what they mean when they say something like, you know, what, what is the bus factor, for example. So we try to have consistent metrics definitions, and then we have a couple of pieces of software that people use to gather open source project health metrics. We'll come back to chaos in a minute. I think there's some other things you do too, yeah? I do. I am on the board of Open UK, okay. which is an organization that's UK-based, and we're focused not just on open source software, but also on open data and open hardware. Yeah, Amanda's been on the show at least twice, I think. Amanda's great. Yes, she's our fearless leader. For sure. And then I'm also involved in the CNCF. I'm co-chair of the Contributor Strategy Technical Advisory Group, where we help CNCF projects with things like governance, building contributor strategies, project health, and a few other things. We've recently launched a couple of initiatives that I'm not personally as involved in, but I'm super excited about. There's one that's for people who are deaf and hard of hearing and making projects more accessible for those folks. There's definitely some dovetailing between those things. One is sort of a little bit at the beginning, and I know it's a horrible word, but the beginning of the funnel. And the other, I guess, is, is more when a project's already established. I mean, ideally, in an ideal world, projects should think about metrics up front, but of course they really do. People are just 
sort of start of something and then realize they need metrics at a later date. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's definitely it's definitely an afterthought. Yeah. I mean, people people tend to think of metrics when somebody is asking them for something. So somebody wants some data about something for, yep. for funding, for a project, for the companies that they work for, things like that. Or they tend to think of metrics when something has gone horribly wrong. So, you know, nobody's coming to the project or maybe they they're seeing some sort of a decline and they're trying to figure out exactly where it is. And so people will look to metrics to troubleshoot. A lot of people tend to interact with open source projects through something like GitHub. And we'll look at those headline metrics like forks and stars, which I think we've now started to realize don't really mean a great deal. So from the chaos project or from your perspective, what would be some of the better headline metrics to look at instead for open source projects? Yeah, absolutely. So so one of my one of my pet peeves is people focusing too much on things like like stars, which is it's a popularity metric. It doesn't really tell you anything about the health of your project. So what I try to focus on are some different metrics and I try to focus on trends within those metrics. So it's less about raw numbers, it's less about just counting things and more about looking at looking at those looking at the trends over time. So one of one of the things I really like to measure is time to first response. So if somebody submits a pull request, how long does it take for a human to actually respond to that pull request? Just to clarify what you mean by first response, do you mean the first response to their first pull request or any pull request? First response to any pull request, yeah. So that gives you an idea of whether or not the project is in generally in general responsive. So are they, you know, when, when I submit a pull request, do I get an answer in an hour, a day, two weeks? And the reason I like to look at this metric is because in particular, new contributors tend to be put off by not getting a response to a pull request. If I put a whole bunch of time into something, I submit a pull request, and nobody responds for weeks, that, that doesn't give me a good impression about the project. So if you want to grow the number of contributors for your project and you want to have a healthy project where people want to be there, you, you do need to be as a project responsive. Even if the response is, hey, you know, so-and-so is on vacation and they'll get back, you know, they'll review the pull request when they get back. Is there any measurement around the, say, the, the quality of a response? I mean, you see a lot of responses on issues and pull requests where there's not very pleasant language. Is that still a good response? <laughs> yeah, that's not a great that's not a great response. And it's it's hard to measure, right? Then you get into things like sentiment analysis which is really, really hard in open source projects. Because that could show a project is, is healthy, but is it necessarily good and healthy? Yeah, it just becomes, it becomes a lot more difficult to, to track that. But I think that there are, there are probably other things that, that get at that, that sentiment. So, you know, one of the things that you can look at are the number of the types of contributors that you have within your project and whether those are growing or declining. So in particular, I look at, there's, there's, there's a way of looking at contributors in like three different buckets. So one is, is core contributors. So those are probably the maintainers. They're the people who make lots of contributions. Then you also have regular contributors. So those are the people who make some contributions, but, you know, maybe not all the time. And they're, you know, maybe not yet a maintainer. And then there's casual contributors. Those are the people who they, they drop by, they fix a bug, they make a change or two, and then you never see them again. And when you have problems with toxic communities, 
generally you see the number of regular maintainers and casual contributors declining. Sorry, regular contributors and casual contributors reclining, declining because usually that toxic bit is in the core contributors because you, you don't put up with it in a project otherwise. And so, so you generally see if there are toxic behaviors within the community, you'll generally see a decline in certain types of contributors. Just remind me, the C, does it stand for contributor or community in, in chaos? Community, community. Yeah, no, so we're actually not, well, so, so let's re redefine contributor. So when I think of contributor, I think of, I define that, and within the chaos project, we define that as all types of contributions to projects, not just code contributions. So documentation, it's, it's typically not users. But it's, it's people who are contributing documentation, who are community managers, who are doing marketing, doing presentations at events. So in some cases, those could be users. My, my first experiences on forays into open source were through the Drupal project. And at the time, I'm not sure if they ever implemented it after that, but at the time, they were always talking about how they could track those non-code contributions has that got better? Has that improved in recent years? It depends. It depends. <laughs> tracking tracking those other types of contributors can be really difficult. Uh, one of the one of the ways that I've seen it work successfully, and this is in part how Kubernetes tends yeah. to do it, um, along with some other CNCF projects, which is they run a lot of that stuff still through GitHub. So they track they track a lot of it as issues. So you can track lots of different types of contributions as as an issue. So you create an issue you know, to, I don't know, to do some like marketing campaign or to have, you know, certain types of maybe communications within the project or certain community manager tasks. And so you can create issues around all of those. And then they do get tracked in a way that you can, you can measure them. But yeah. there's also loads of things that you just, you just can't really measure. And you just kind of have to talk to people and find out what people are doing and take that into account in other, other ways. And do people come to you with requirements or do you go out passively looking for projects that might need metrics help, et cetera, et cetera? Usually, usually they come to us or in a lot of cases, they just grab our tools and use them. And we probably, probably never know, but we do have within the chaos project, we have quite a few different working groups where we try to get people who are working in certain areas to, to work with us. So we have a working group that's focused on open source program offices, which is really active. And so we have loads of people from lots of the big open source program offices, big tech companies and others, not just tech companies, but we meet every other week and we talk about things that are relevant to them, maybe some gaps in the metrics, ways that they can measure things and different, you know, different approaches. And, and we have really interesting conversations around that. And then we also have another one that's focused on universities and scientific software. So a lot of universities are spinning up open source program offices. And in a lot of cases, those are very different because they're maybe a little more research-based. And the problems that universities face when it comes to open source or the challenges are just completely different than in a, in a corporate setting. So we also talk to, talk to that group a lot. And so again, that group meets about every other, every other week. That leads to some discussions about things that are open but are not traditional software projects. So do you offer any advice on metrics for things like uh, machine learning models, open standards, those kinds of things that maybe change in, in different ways in their community? Yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not a focus for the chaos project. So I don't know if other people are, other people are looking at that, but we're, we're pretty focused on open source software projects. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that we see in the CNCF because we have a couple of projects that are more standards, yeah. effectively specifications. And yeah, <laughs> and how you how you look at the success of a specification is very different yeah. than how you look at the success of an open source software project. So what are some of the other metrics you like to look at? Yeah, one of the other ones I really like to look at is change request closure ratio. So change request is basically a generic term for pull request because that's, yeah. Because what you don't want to see is a backlog of neglected pull requests, because that shows that it shows that people aren't necessarily keeping up with the project or maybe aren't being honest with contributors about whether or not their pull request is going to be merged. So one of the things that, and again, I look at that as a trend. So how is that changing over time? And I look for projects to, depending on the size of the project, if it's a big project, they'll have more open pull requests. If it's a smaller project, they can probably keep up better. But I look at the, the trend to see if they are closing about as many pull requests as they have open in any particular month. Now, it won't be all of them. There'll be some, some gap between the total and the number that were closed. But one of the reasons I think this is really important is that if you look at, if you look at pull requests and... A lot of times, a lot of times maintainers have a hard time being honest with people about the success of their pull request. So if I submit a pull request and it's just architecturally incompatible with the project, a lot of maintainers don't necessarily want to be like, oh yeah, no, that's, we're just not going to take it. We're going to close it without merge. So a lot of projects are reluctant to close things without merge, but if I'm a contributor, I would rather just know that than to have this open pull request for months and months and months. Yeah. And if you look at the, the way pull requests work, if you have a pull request that's open for more than a couple of months, it's likely it's going to have so many merge conflicts that it's going to be really difficult, if not impossible, to merge anyways. So you're better off closing things that you aren't going to merge or just merging the things that you are going to merge, even if it's into like a developer branch or something. Yeah. But taking care of those pull requests and keeping up with them is something that is is a challenge. I mean, every project I've ever worked on at some point has struggled with that. But the better you are at maintaining that, I think the more healthy the project is as a whole. As someone who has a good uh, aggregate view of metrics over many different projects, it's been an interesting year for, or an interesting couple of years for open source with, you know, with changes in licensing, with uh, limitations on funding and, uh, especially for those uh, projects that were not really, or maybe they were open source for marketing purposes, not kind of open source for more, not open source for more. I don't know. I mean, in, in Jim's keynote this morning, one of the things that he highlighted was that, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of open source projects and less than a dozen that have relicensed. It's just that they're very... They're very high profile, yeah. the ones that, that have. And so I think, I do think that it's a trend that we're seeing, we're seeing more of that, right? So it wasn't something that we used to see a lot of. And then in the past year or two, we've seen a lot of this, this relicensing. So I will be curious to see how that, how that plays out just in the broader community, because it, it generally, I, I can't imagine that it works well for these companies, the amount of bad press that they get. I don't know, maybe financially it makes sense for them. I mean, it comes from pressure from VCs and from um, financial stakeholders. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about a little bit uh, recently on a bit of a, a side issue, but somewhat related. And I've had this feeling that 
whilst it has helped start a lot of open source projects and kickstart a lot of open source projects, VC funding, investor funding has has created more of a business-focused software rather than user-focused software. And has that been good for open source, actually? No, and I, I would say the, the one thing that this, this relicensing trend has, has sort of spurred companies to do is to take a more critical look at some of these VC-funded open source projects and whether or not they should they should use them. So one of the things when I when I worked at VMware, which is where I was most recently before the Chaos Project, I would generally discourage people from within VMware from at least from using a lot of these projects that are single vendor open source projects that could potentially be relicensed for a variety of reasons, VC funding, license models, things like that, at least discouraging them from incorporating those into flagship products, right? So it's different if you're just going to use something in your infrastructure, but if you're going to build a product on top of a technology, you want that technology to be a really low risk. And this licensing risk is something that kept bubbling up you know, so yeah. so when you look at that, you also look at it in the context of the governance. Of the Which leads directly to the metrics, of course. If it's the same five people all the time. Yeah, and it's the same five people that work at that same company. Yeah. You know, it's it's a big risk for for a company, especially, you know, the, a big company to build something on top of those technologies. Because at any point, the company could relicense that technology like what Elastic did. They could decide that it's strategically not important for them anymore and pull all of their developers off of it, in which case, unless there's a big community or ecosystem around it, the project's likely going to die on the vine. And so there are a lot of a lot of risks that you take when you support those projects. The other extreme of that are these projects that are just one person and sometimes these very key projects like Curl, which is used by so many things and also OpenSSL. There was news around this in the past. And if that's one highly engaged person, is it necessarily any better than those company, basically in a, in a house company open source projects? No, that's not any better, actually. Yeah. And that's another key metric that I look at, which is a metric that within the chaos project, we've called it bus factor, which is the most common name. Um, it's, that's a little macabre. So I, I tend to think of it as like lottery factor. So if, if that person won the lottery yes. and retired on a, a beach, yes. Oh no no no, bus bus factor, which is uh, a little grim. So, won the lottery, yeah. retired on a beach. Yeah. What happens? What happens to that project? <laughs> some some of them do. Like it's funny you talk to people about this this metric, and they're like, "But I would still do it." Yes, I know you would, but not everyone. But yeah, so I look at I look at that and I it's one of the it's so so there are kind of four metrics that I generally that I start with yes. when I'm looking at project health for a project and and bus factor is one of them. So I look at who's making the most of most of the contributions and if it's if it's that one person who's making, you know, 75% of the contributions, then that's that's probably not a very healthy project. And the reason I like this metric is because it does help you assess the risk. But it also, in addition to that, helps projects maybe see up and coming contributors who are maybe, you know, there's this, this one person who's contributing, maybe making 10% of the contributions. 
maybe they should be a maintainer if they're not already. So it does two things. It shows you the risk and where the potential problems are, but it also does that in the context of how a project can also make that better for themselves. There are some pretty famous, long-established open source projects that people would probably like to contribute to more, but either the barrier entry to just actively contributing is very high or the barrier to understanding the complexity of the project itself is is quite high. So, you know, they end up having probably what looks like quite poor metrics, even though the project is, is pretty well established and, and healthy. I, I do I do think that's a problem for some projects. It, you know, it, it's interesting because so much of what we do now has moved into the GitHub ecosystem and newer, younger developers who are just coming in, people who are just coming into the field, not necessarily younger, but newer developers, they're kind of used to working in a certain way. Yeah. And it's yeah. a little more social, it's GitHub, yeah. it's, you know, everything's kind of online, it's Slack. And, and then you look at the Linux kernel community and one of the one of the reasons they've had so many problems, I think, getting newer contributors on board is is because it's just a very different way of working. And if you look now, this is especially like the younger population really doesn't do email. And so you're asking them to contribute to an open source project that's based entirely on on email. And that's a it's a big barrier to entry for for a lot of people. And there are. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And and you know, to be fair, like the kernel knows that this is knows that this is an issue, and there are good technical reasons why they're not on GitHub. Um, but but it does it does increase the it does increase the barrier to entry for those those projects. So far, we've talked a lot about the sorts of metrics we could track and keep an eye on. But what are some of the tools that you've mentioned that you help maintain? What are they? Yeah, so we have we have two primary tools that are solely within the Chaos project. So we have Grimoire Lab, which is the one that a lot of people know. It's maintained mostly by folks at a company called Baturgia that are based out of Madrid. They are right down in the on the show floor here. Yeah, so they maintain Grimoire Lab, which is based on it's an open search database with an old an older fork of Kibana as as kind of the, the dashboard. So they had forked Kibana before before it was cool to fork Kibana, like before the license changed this years and years and years ago. But so it's based on kind of that technology and it's very, very dashboard focused. So you have dashboards for anything you can imagine and you can filter those using, you know, kind of search queries. And it's really flexible, but it's very, it's very dashboard focused. So it's great for community managers who need to understand every detail about the project. And then we have another tool called Augur which is on the, on the back end is a Postgres database. And it tends to be used more by, by data scientists, so people like me. It's used a lot by people who, who need a lot of scale. So, so Grimoire Lab scales to a couple thousand repositories, maybe at the, the top end. Augur scales to tens of thousands of repositories. But it also, it, Augur is focused on repository data. And Grimoire Lab also has things like Slack and mailing lists and IRC and all sorts of other data sources, okay. which is why it doesn't scale to as many repositories yeah. because it's it's just a lot more, it's a lot more data. So just two very different different pieces of, of software in there. Oh, and there's one more piece of software that I want to mention, which is not officially a chaos project, yeah. but they work really, really closely with us and they've implemented a lot of our metrics models. So chaos has metrics definitions and then we have collections of metrics definitions that we call models, which are, you know, if you want to look at we have a starter project health metrics model, which has four metrics in it. It's like, how do you get started measuring project health? Yeah. 
And so open source, sorry, it's OSS Compass. And it's, it's another open source project that happens to implement a lot of chaos metrics. They work really closely with us. They're not officially a chaos project, but they're sort of a tool that's a friend of, friend okay. of chaos. Does it also connect to Discord? I know a lot of projects seem to be using that these days for their community uh, communications, which I've never completely understood why, but uh, there we go. So, so Grimmer Lab connects to lots of different data sources. So, so that one is a lot more flexible. Augur is mostly, mostly Git data, so GitLab, GitHub, regular Git repositories. So it's, it's a little more, more Git focused. And then Grimmer Lab is more, is a little broader, which is why it's better for community managers because they want to get a full, full picture of, of what's going on. And I would say it's probably probably not something you would implement if you're just looking at one repository because you could just look at that repository and kind of get a sense for a lot of the a lot of the metrics. And the the reality is the tools the tools that we have are a little bit harder to use. We have we do have sort of cloud interfaces for some of these. So Grimoire Lab has Cauldron, which is cauldron.io, which is a kind of a hosted instance of it which with limited functionality. Augur has something similar. There's an eight knot front end that is maintained by some folks over at Red Hat. And, and you can use that just online. And you can look at a single repository in that. Like, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to install Augur or Grimoire Lab for just a single, single repository, but you could use some of these yeah. online tools. And sorry, a supplemental one. For, for those tools that do the aggregation of different data sources, is there any form of correlation? So people can see, oh, this is the same person on, on Slack, on, on GitHub, for example, et cetera, et cetera. So they know it's the, the same uh, engagement point with their project. Yeah, so, so it's, more, it's less of a problem in Augur because it's just Git data, so you don't have as much overlap. But in, in Grimoire Lab, there's actually a tool that's part of the Grimoire Lab suite called Sorting Hat, which you see a theme here. But the way, the way it works is that you run it and it does a lot of automated matching. So it looks for, you know, like name matches and similar email addresses. And it, it looks for a bunch of different things to try to decide if a person, if these two profiles are actually the same person. And then you can also do that manually within, within the same tool. So you can, you can run it and then you realize, oh, it didn't, it didn't match this person. And I know they're the same as this person over here. So I'll just manually match those, match those up. You may have inadvertently answered the first part of my next question, and that was, when does a project know it needs to scale to using something and then, then move to other tools and add other tools, for example? When, when, in a project's path does it, when in a project's journey does it know it needs to, to start tracking these sorts of metrics? And then how easy is it to start connecting up all these sources of information they may then have at that point to get meaningful metrics out of all of those different sources? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So within the Chaos Project, we really just created this new director of data science position that I'm in. So it's, it's relatively new. And there are a lot of things that I want to accomplish over the next six to 12 months. And, and there are things like, Right now, one of the things that I have open is a survey about the challenges that people face when they're using our software. Yeah. So I'm trying to better understand what the barriers are and work with the software teams to see if we can fix those and make it easier for people to use our software. I'm also trying to work on better positioning for our software so that if 
if I'm coming into the chaos project right now, we have a page that lists a whole bunch of features. It was like, if you want to use our software, here's, you know, here they are, but there's not really, there's not really good. Like if you're this type of person looking for this type of data, you might be better off with this tool. And if you're this type of person looking for this type of data, you might be better off with the other one. So I'm working with the two projects to try and harmonize that so that we can provide better guidance for people. And that's really what this position was designed to do is to provide better guidance because the chaos project as a whole historically has very deliberately been hands off when it comes to interpretation of metrics. So we give you piles of metrics, we give you tools where you can collect those piles of metrics, but you're on your own, like figure it out yourself. And that doesn't work for people because it's a pile of metrics and they don't know what to do with it. And so they get, they get overwhelmed. They don't know where to start. So most of my work over the next year is going to be focused on that. So the software yeah, positioning yeah, yeah. is a piece of it, yeah. working on some, some guides, how to, how to interpret yeah. metrics, because it, it is different for every project. Yeah. There's no one size fits all. I can't say if this is going up, that means this. Yeah. It's if this is going up, it might mean this, unless this other thing is going down, yeah. in which case it might mean something else. Yeah. And so I want to put together some guides to help people, help people figure out how to interpret these, yeah. these metrics. Yeah. I think... One of the biggest examples of a, an open source project for me in this is something like Homebrew, which it functions by opening and closing a lot of pull requests almost automatically. So it has a large amount of metrics that will mean something very different from another project. Yeah, so that, that's the thing. This is, this is where you have to actually understand understand the project that you're working with yeah. and understand how to interpret the data that you're seeing. So Sophia Vargas, who's another, she's within the Chaos Project, she works as a data scientist at Google and she was doing a bunch of research on Kubernetes and there was some yeah. stuff in the data that she was like, this just makes no sense. I don't see how this could be possible. But she tried to like figure it out with the data and finally she just went to talk to some Kubernetes developers and they were like, oh, we've got a bot for that. that that's why you see this weird behavior because it's all, it's all done by a bot. Like, why are our pull requests only open for, our issues only open for three months? Oh, because we have a bot that marks them as stale and closes them uh, after a certain period of time. <laughs> and so, so she was seeing these things in the data that just didn't make any sense. Yeah. And for that project, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily look at the data in the same way that you'd look at a project that doesn't, yeah. doesn't have yeah. the same sort of bot infrastructure. I think there's so many more things we could have dug into, but thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that was my interviews with Gab and with Dawn. I don't think I have a tremendous amount to update you on since last week. I tell a lie. I updated my video for Run Me on YouTube. I replaced the live version I did a little while ago with an edited version, actually at the request of the creators of Run Me, uh, correcting a few things, learning a few things, tweaking a few things, and they made a lot of changes to it over the past uh, few months as well. So that's one you can find on my YouTube channel. And I'm just finishing up a blog post, which I should be putting out very soon around music scoring apps, the text version of the video I made recently. So all those things out the way, I'll probably be back next week with a couple more interviews from the past few weeks. I think maybe some more from Open Source Summit, maybe some from something else. I'm not quite sure yet, but until then, Thank you very much for joining me and take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. 
And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work. <laughs>